Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 503 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing and publishing and how to succeed as an author or writer. What have you guys been up to this week? I have had house guests and I'm definitely not a domestic goddess, so I find this kind of thing a little bit stressful, even though, of course, I love the company and, you know, my friends are great and all of that. But, you know, I never know what to cook. I never know what to buy and so on. One of my house guests, interestingly, was in charge of the Spotify playlist and they put on No Doubt. You remember them, the band that Gwen Stefani was in that she started out in? Well, that got me thinking about the word doubt. Yes, believe it or not, this is how my brain works. So this is all for the this is for all the word nerds out there. I love finding out the etymology of words because it's usually something both unexpected and also kind of obvious <laughs> once you look at it. So let's take the example of the word doubt, meaning to be uncertain about something. In English, we spell it with a silent B, which gives you a little clue as to where it comes from, which is the number two. Why is that related to number two? Okay, think about the English word double. It has the same root as doubt, like D-O-U-B-L-E for double, D-O-U-B-T for doubt. And so does the word dubious, and they all come from the word two in Latin, duo. So how did number two come to mean doubt? Well, it's the, it's the same sense of things like um, of two minds or undecided between two things. And believe it or not, it's similar in other languages. So in German, um, zwei is two. Um, you know, eins, zwei, drei, which is one, two, three. And the German for doubt is zweifel. So number two in German is zwei, But the word doubt in German is zweifel. There you go. Now you can all sleep. Let's move on now to, um, I want to talk about self-editing your manuscript because there's such an important skill and it came up in some of the sessions at the festival I was at recently and it got me thinking and I started talking to some authors about it because this is something you need to get into the habit of doing, editing your story at least two or three or maybe even more times before it's ready for a professional editor or a publisher or even a beta reader. But it can be really hard to see your own mistakes because you're just so close to it, right? Especially if you've been deeply involved with your story for a long time. So I was talking to an author who shared this super simple tip to help you splot, not splot, (laughs) to help you spot clunky sentences and repetitions and other foul deeds that may be littering your manuscript. And she said simply, change the font size. Yes, in whatever program you're writing in, Word or Pages or Scrivener or Google Docs, whatever, change the font size. And I mean really change it, you know, go from 11 to 18, point size 18. It will completely change the way your document is laid out, which kind of, according to this author, kind of helps to reset your brain so that you no longer skip over the errors or it's a little bit harder to skip over the errors because they look so different. Words and sentences and paragraphs end up being laid out very differently. So you'll be able to see 
the repetitive words or phrases more clearly, according to this author. You can also try changing the actual font and the margins as well. I do, yeah, I think the, the, um, that makes a lot of sense because it'll look completely different then, right? Anything that forces your brain to look at your words in a new way is definitely beneficial. So print out your newly resized document and maybe even take it to a new location and edit it there. Of course, if you need more guidance on how to edit your novel in a step-by-step process, our course, Cut, Shape, Polish, will give you a complete framework and a step-by-step process to polish your manuscript into a publishable piece of work. So check it out at writercenter.com.au slash polish. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of The Book of Phobias and Manias by Kate Summerscale to give away. Here's what the book is about. The History of the World in 99 Obsessions. This is a thrilling compendium of our deepest fears and obsessions by the best-selling author of The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, and we have three copies to be won. Here's the short summary. Ever been struck dumb when speaking in public? You might be suffering from glossophobia. Do your book buying habits verge on bibliomania? Do you recoil in arachnophobic horror at the sight of a spider? Or twitch with nomophobia when you misplace your mobile phone? Our fears and compulsions often feel like part of our deepest selves, yet they're bound up in the currents of the world around us. This thrilling compendium of 99 phobias and manias, rare and familiar, delves into the obsessions that shape us all. Award-winning author Kate Summerscale takes us from the Middle Ages to the present day, using rich and riveting case studies to trace the links between the private and the public, the personal and the political. There you go. We have three copies to give away. You can find out more, well, and just enter the competition by going to writercentercomau slash win. Entries close on the 10th of October. That's writercentercomau slash win. I think it sounds like a fascinating book. And of course, now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are, and I'm hope, I hope I'm ready to say it. Okay, it is aposiopesis. Aposiopesis. That's A-P-O... S-I-O-P-E-S-I-S, apasiopesis. Now, this is when somebody suddenly breaks off in the middle of a sentence. Usually, it's meant in a deliberate way to leave part of the sentence unsaid and leave it up to the imagination of the listener. For example, that's when the suspect decided to, well, you've seen the photos, or when Homer Simpson grabs Bart and says, why you little, and doesn't say the rest. That's apesiopesis. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. 
Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. Now let's move on to our wonderful writer in residence this week. Petronella McGovern writes psychological thrillers and her latest book, The Liars, is a family drama wrapped in a murder mystery. It's her third novel. Her debut novel, Six Minutes, was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Awards, the David Awards, and her second novel, The Good Teacher, is popular with book clubs and was longlisted for the David Awards. Thank you so much for joining us today, Petronella. Oh, it's such a joy to be here. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, my God. I'm so excited for what this book is going to do because it is the definition of a page turner. Your writing is so real, so fantastic. The story is brilliant. I don't have enough good words to say. But for listeners who haven't got a um, copy yet, and they should, can you tell us what it's about? Oh, thank you, Val. It's, it's such a relief. Like, you know, you write the book for so long and when it comes, you know, and early readers have said much like you, so I'm so excited. So The Liars is a story really of a, a seaside town called Kington Bay and it's um, bouncing back after the bushfires and the floods and the pandemic and it relies on tourism for, for survival. So it's finally getting back on its feet. And then 15-year-old Sienna is out in the National Park and she's doing a history assignment and she's videoing and she finds a skull. Now, she thinks this skull is related to the assignment she's doing about the untold history of the town and she thinks the skull is related to a massacre committed by the town founder that no one wants to talk about. So she films it puts it on her YouTube, sends it to all the media channels and it goes absolutely viral and the um, news stations pick it up. It's all over the news that night. And certain members of the community are absolutely furious about this, what, you know, what they see as negative publicity when the town's just getting back on the feet. Um, but in the meantime, Sienna's mum, Mary, is a local journalist and she thinks that her daughter is wrong, that the skull is actually related to a teenage um, schoolmate who went missing back in the 1990s. So they used to have teenage parties out there in the in the national park in a place called the Killing Cave, mm. and um, these teenage parties always ended badly. Um, so she thinks, yes, this schoolmate who went missing, who was her enemy, but her husband's best friend, who they haven't talked about for years and years and years. So as the police start to investigate, more bones are discovered, more questions are asked, and um, really Sienna and Mary and the whole community have to work out who's telling the truth and who are the liars. So what gave you this idea? <laughs> it's quite a complex story with many it different is. threads. It is. <laughs> um, and really I guess a few different things came together for me. One part of it was 
and because it is, it's a family drama, it's a, it's a mystery, it's a crime thriller, it's, you know, contemporary discussion of, you know, things. Um, so I think for me, part of it started, my daughter turned 15 and um, she started going to teenage parties and I thought, oh, at least, you know, girls are treated better back than when I was 15. So originally I was kind of thinking about this story of how things had changed from a mother to a teenage daughter. And then around the same time, or as I was starting to look at this, then um, things came out in the media, the Chanel Contos um, survey in the eastern suburbs of Sydney about the private school girls who did a survey on the number of sexual assaults at teenage parties. Um, then the Brittany Higgins case in Parliament House came out. Then we started marching again, you know, women justice, justice marches for women, marches for... <laughs> <laughs> Justice for women, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, and, and I saw that things, you know, they've changed a little since I was a teenager, but not as much as I'd hoped. And certainly my daughter started telling me things. And so I, saw, I, I came up with this idea, and it's none of it's, none of it's autobiographical, but um, something happened to a mother when she was 15, when she'd gone to teenage parties, and now she's really overprotective of her her daughter particularly she has twins but the daughter she's particularly overprotective of and um and so she's really cracking down on her and watching every minute and hoping that things are different and um and her paranoia sort of doesn't help what happens in the in the story mm. but as you uh, say there it, there it is quite a complex story because you have the mother mary's story um you know from well currently but obviously from her past you have her daughter's point of views, because you write from different points of view. So you have Sienna, the daughter's um, experience and story. You have, you know, this um, uh, stuff of what's going on in the background of the history assignment and mm. all of that. And you have, you know, the interactions of the um, uh, of the of the father Rollo and 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 what's going on in his life and so on. So you write from different points of view and you have this comp a number of complex threads. How in the but and yet when a reader is reading this, it is just seamless. So how in the world did you manage in your head or on paper or on um, post-it notes, whatever, all of these threads? Well, I think a lot of it. I write very fast first drafts so I like to write like go with the flow and I know people some people go back and edit as they're writing but that's not me I just I just want to get it all out get the story out and see where it's taking me because I'm not really a planner I've got maybe five points that I know will happen I, I know the twist I know you know some hopefully that some sort of resolution um, and a few points but I don't really know what's going to happen so I write the story for myself to see what's going to happen and then a lot of I think that sort of seamlessness and is then in the um, in the editing. I edit and edit and edit and edit, um, and I think that's where then I tie things into each other better. There, so in fact, in a final edit, I was I was thinking I need a location to do such and such. Oh no, I have to create a new location. But then I went no no I've got that I'm trying to try not to do spoilers of anything but you know and I realized I had already had a location that I could I could use that existed and then it was a really nice sort of circular storyline mm. to bring it back there um so I think editing for me but editing like writing a story in a sort of 
furious kind of way and then editing more slowly works quite well for me to make sure it all hangs together in a in a seamless way. So let's talk about this actual manuscript then. You say you write your first draft in a furious way. So can you tell, can you give us some timelines as to how long it took you to get that first draft out and then how long was the editing process? So I started just as the pandemic was hitting. (laughs) So that was like um, so March 2020, February, March 2020. And, in fact, the pandemic kind of crushed me in terms of... um, um, creativity and I was I was doing a final edit on The Good Teacher, my last book, so I could, that was sort of easier to do because that was, you know, just fixing up um, and I, so I sort of started in fits and starts and then um, and then I thought oh, I just have to get on with it, <laughs> get part, so, you know, we got used to lockdown, we moved on and I think for me the thing about the pandemic was, you know, I'm trying to write about what happens in a family and a community and when when things are terrible in a crisis point and then then the world was in this crisis point and, um, you know, it was worse than anything that I could write. So I just think I felt like it was a story, you know, you were living in your novel, you were, it was playing out around you. Um, so once I got used to that, I could, <laughs> could go back to writing <laughs> about tricky times in communities. Um, so then I did, so I was, I was actually finishing off a Masters of Creative Writing, so I did write a few chapters for that. And then I thought I have to hurry up and I did NaNoWriMo. Oh, and so in November of, I guess that was 2020, I, um, I wrote about 45,000 words that month. I was wow, de- fantastic. I, was, I know, and I was determined to, um, to get to the 50. And I remember I'd, I, was, I had to go to Canberra. For something and I'd taken the laptop I'm like okay I'm at a friend's house that's fine I'll get up really early I'll get up at six I'll just write if I write 2,000 words today 2,000 words tomorrow I'll, I'll break the back of this and I'll, I'll, I'll get through NaNoWriMo and I opened my computer and the whole thing had frozen <gasps> and I couldn't and and it had just stopped Oh, no. So it took me a bit. So thankfully they managed to, um, I had been doing backups, but not, not um, you know, not the day before, but I've been doing backups. But um, thankfully they managed to get all the stuff off the computer. And But it took me two weeks then to <laughs> get my laptop back. <laughs> um, and then the editing process. So I'd sort of so yeah. So the editing process was a bit longer than usual because our schedule changed, which was the publishing schedule. Nothing to do with you know what I was doing. Um, but then we had a so we had a structural edit, sort of I guess December January, December. Oh, yeah. So sorry, it, things took a bit longer. So I'm just trying to remember. It's a, it was a weird year. Yes. Um, yeah. So I had a structural edit actually in about October and then another. October edit. the following year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do, I normally do about six drafts myself. So if yep. I do the first, first furious draft and then I sit down and edit, 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 then hand it to the publisher, then we have the structural edit. So let's talk about those six drafts. In those six drafts, do you, um, a focus on a different thing in each draft or do you just go in a linear fashion the whole way and fix whatever you can each time? Yeah, I do the linear fashion. I know it's not um, 
it's not the best use of my time, but I don't seem to be able to do it any other way. <laughs> but I do, I have a really good writing group and some from the Australian Writers' Centre who I met at a course there. And uh, so I have a number of people that I can show it to. Um, so I probably showed it the first draft to three people, did a redraft, showed the next draft to another two friends um, and then took on board their comments and um, reworked it. And, and, of course, what I felt once I'd read the draft and went, this isn't working or that isn't working. Um, now, some years ago, obviously three novels ago or four novels now that you're writing the next one ago, you um, had it been published yet and you did do some courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and met a group of, you know, fantastic peers who, are, who you're still in contact with. Um, first of all, how useful was that course and subsequently with that writing cohort of friends how useful is it to have that those beta readers and and just really just supporters well that course um made me finish the next not that novel six minutes and I think for me I was working I had the kids and um it's hard, you know, as we all know, it's hard to carve out time to write. It's not, you know, you're not getting paid for it. No one's waiting for it. There's no deadline. So for me doing that course, so that was a six-month write your novel course, it meant um, I had deadlines. I had to be, so, and I was doing it in person, so I had to be somewhere every Monday night. Um, we gave each other feedback. We had you know, Pamela Freeman, fantastic uh, instructor, Um and it really helped me focus and say to both myself and my family, you know, mum's got homework, I've got to finish, <laughs> you know, put it in their terms, they were younger. And I, I felt it really helped me finish that book and then get feedback on it um, through the class. And then afterwards, yeah, so I kept, we kept going with about five of us and um, shared another draft to them. And they were so helpful and so supportive. And we all all write in different genres but in a way I think that worked quite well because they asked different sort of questions about the, the manuscript and, and and more about motivations and why would that character do that and I don't quite believe that so they were focused you know on the storytelling um, structure as well as well as like do you think it should start here or this we haven't got quite enough clues to this you know and um, I think, yeah, it's been wonderful. We, we, we see each other less now because people sort of moved apart but um, moved away, not apart, <laughs> and we're all at different stages now. But it's been really helpful and really, really very supportive. And I find I know people are scared to show their work to others, but to me that's the only way you know how someone else can interpret it because you're writing in your own bubble, in your own head, and you think, oh, everybody understands this character like I do. But no, a reader only has what you've written and their own imagination, which they bring to it. So they're creating, you know, their own story in a way in their head. So I think, yeah, having having other people read it and other people who are interested in writing and understand writing is so, is so important and supportive. It's so important. It's, it's, it fast-tracks your development, doesn't mm. it? Because you can eventually figure it out, but it could take you years instead of, you know, a much, much shorter time if you get that feedback. Now, the thing is, over the last um, few years, the last, well, four novels, um, you have developed your own writing craft. You, I mean, this book is just fantastic. 
Like I'm not understand. Leanne Moriarty has said one of my favourite Australian writers, and I absolutely agree because it's just brilliant. So you're now at the stage where you have a greater mastery. We never master, you know, we're always learning, but you have a greater mastery of the craft than, than back then. And you are actually one of our tutors as well. What do you enjoy about teaching the craft? I think, I, well, I just love writing and I love reading. So I love, you know, I love, I love seeing what, what um, our students are writing and their imagination and things that come out, you know, you think of an exercise. I think, oh, I'd never think that, but that's so fascinating where you've taken that story. So firstly, that individual, you know, the unique um, imagination and creativity of each person is, is absolutely fascinating. I mean, sometimes we think, oh, every story's been told, but in fact, everyone has such a, a different background, a different imagination, a different upbringing. You know, they bring something to the same exercise and you get 15 different, completely different ideas. And I, I find that wonderful. Mm. Um, and I just love seeing, um, I guess, light bulb moments when, so I've been doing creative writing stage one, which is the early, early courses. You've been teaching it. Emerging it, yes, <laughs> emerging writers. And some of them say, oh, my gosh, now I understand about point of view or, mm. oh, now that's why that's why what I'm writing isn't working because I'm telling it from the wrong point of view. So, so just seeing the way they suddenly, it's like a light bulb moment, switch on to an, a concept about writing and whether that's point of view or structure or, or tense or changing points of view. Um, it's just, it's really so wonderful to see that and then to see what they produce next, you know, in the next week's assignment is amazing. And then you know, to compare between the beginning of the course and the end of the course, it's really, really fabulous. I love it. Now, <clears throat> you you just mentioned point of view and it is something that a lot of newer writers struggle with and they don't get it quite right often because and, and often they have a great story but they can't they're, they're not writing it with um an understanding of point of view you totally understand it you've got um uh each chapter is written from a different person's point of view there's you know a handful of points of view in this book um from different characters so in terms of your characterization in terms of you developing your main characters did you, um, what did you do to develop them? Is, was that something that also occurred on the page and you got to know them as you were writing or did you have some sense of, you know, or, or did you write a paragraph or something on each of these people before you started so you knew what, what kind of headspace to get into because you kind of have to get, well, you do have mm. to get into the headspace of a character that you're from, that where you're writing from their point of view. Yeah, so I tend to write my way in. So I, I'd write maybe um, maybe five chapters or so, each from a different point of view, and then I'll sit down and I'll do some do a bit more in depth research about. So the detective, for example, we've got Chief Inspector Poole in the book is one of the characters, and I sort of was um, then did quite a bit of research about. Um, a chief inspector who'd have that size police station and how he'd speak and, you know, how he would interact with the public and other, um, you know, his, his team. Mm. 
How um, would you? How did you t- tell us? How did you do that research <laughs> of of that kind of chief inspector and that size police well, and all of that? How I, a lot of it was online. Well, this is a pandemic, so most of it was online. Um, but researching a lot of uh, so now a lot of police stuff is um, on Facebook about how they're interacting with the community, stories about a new um, a new police inspector has started in a small town similar to what I, Kinton Bay, which is fictional. Um, so I was finding um, Facebook stories, newspaper stories, um, researching retirement stories, like so I understood his arc of how he would become a, um, a chief inspector, like looking at those levels, looking at um, what was the other thing I looked at? Oh, um, what do you call it? Um, um, job, job specifications, like, you know, what do you need to be? a police officer, a detective, a chief inspector, looking at the ranks. Um, and then I do, I, I have, since six minutes, I'd interviewed a number of detectives. So I went back to one of those and asked her some questions about um, about the chief inspector role. And she was great. So she told me, oh, we, you know, we call our, we call ours, we just call ours boss. Like <laughs> I was saying, do you call him sir? What do you call him? And she's like, ah, uh, no, we just call him boss. <laughs> And how many are in that team? And yeah, so, but a lot of it online because of the pandemic. Um, mm. And I would have liked to have done more. I kept thinking, oh, I'll go to a police station in that sort of area. Um, but in the end, I just, I, I ended up doing most of it online in terms of that actual. Um, Interesting, yeah. because Kinton Bay is, um, as you say, it's fictional, but it <clears throat> feels very real on the page. And I feel like, oh, I think I drove through something like this recently. <laughs> Did you base it on a town, though? Um, it's not real. It's it's based on an area rather than a town. So uh, we used to go to Port Stephens on the sort of mid-north coast of New South Wales um, every every Christmas, so January holidays, and I like that feeling of I really wanted a tourist town that sort of is so buzzing in summer but then in winter everyone disappears and, and you're sort of, um, you know, you're sort of struggling to make ends meet in the off season, um, and and I like that idea of seasons. And in fact, the first my working title for this book was Bleak Season because it was in winter, and um, it was sort of a lot about the seasons of of well of change, but of, um, of summer and winter and what happens in the off season. Um, and but, but yes, Port Stevens is a much bigger town. It's lots of different suburbs. It's a lots of different places. Whereas this is just a small, a small, um, one small town. <laughs> In my head, it was just uh, outside of Foster somewhere. Yeah, so somewhere there, wasn't... I know. Someone said to me, "You've based this on Foster, haven't you?" And yeah. I said, no, not really. But <laughs> all right. <laughs> so um, the first book, which went so well, was six minutes. And then The Good Teacher and now The Liars. How has the experience changed for you, the writing experience, obviously, over those three novels? Have you, you know, found new efficiencies? Have you um, developed some systems? You know, because the first novel you're kind of just doing whatever. Um, But now you're down the track quite a bit. So is it different? Well, I think I trust myself more. Although having said that, I still, because everyone talks about planning, still when I sit down, sat down to write um, The Liars, I still spent about four weeks researching how to write a book. 
Well, how to plan a book, how to structure a book. And I keep thinking I should plan more, I should plan more. How do I plan? And then eventually I'm like, that's not what I do. It's not my process. Mm. Trust yourself. And it's terrifying, you know, setting off into into writing 90,000 words or 100,000 words when you don't really have a plan. And so... So then I just have to say, you know, now I know, I know, trust yourself, just keep writing, and the answer is in the writing. The writing will make the story come. So I find that, so I'm writing early morning is my best time. So if I write even just 300 words early morning, then the story's in my head, you know, and I can come back to it when I finish doing other stuff, come back to it um, and keep writing all through the day. Um but the thing is, I think when it's in your head, whatever else you're doing, you're thinking about it. And, you know, you might be walking the dog, you might be driving the car, doing the washing, whatever it is, the story is still going over in your head. And then suddenly you go, oh, I know what's going to happen next. And it just comes to you mm. because it's it's percolating, it's in the subconscious. And um, so I think that, uh, so trust, yes, trusting myself <laughs> and um yeah, and I think I think I've got a. Um, I love a cliffhanger chapter endings, so I think I've really worked harder on those and and worked out how to pull those off well. And endings are always hard. The ending of the book, um, and so I think I wrote the six minutes ending about six times, and I probably wrote this ending about six times as well. Um, but I was you so, mean different ending? C- yeah, completely well, different endings. Well, complete, well, how the sort of the denouement, how it all, you know, mm-hmm. the climax and then how it all finishes yep. up, the resolution. Um, and then, yeah, so with this ending of The Liars, I was, you know, normally as a writer you have so much self-doubt and this final ending I went, I am so happy with this ending. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, so I was really happy in the, with that, uh, writing that ending. But so, so I guess it's trust and confidence, yeah, as well. Yes, definitely. So with the, when you are in the throes of writing that first um, furious draft, um, do, do you spend all day doing it? Like what what kind of, how much do you carve out of your day or that you dedicate to, to writing? Um, I try and spend most of the day, yeah, and I do still do some other, um, I'm doing other paid work for clients, so I do some of that and some teaching and, you know, some other things. But, yeah, most the majority of the day I would be doing Do you have a word count goal? Um, just lately my word count goal was 2,000 words a day. Oh, my God, um, that's quite a lot. <clears throat> yeah, it was quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't always achieve it. Sometimes I do 3,000, sometimes I do 1,000. Um, and sometimes, you know, life just other things happen and um <clears throat> and one day I did take oh that's right I had I had to go away and I took my laptop and I carried it around for three days and barely opened it and I was sort of and then it fell out of the car and I was worried it had broken but when I did finally open it I only wrote 300 words but it was a pivotal moment and I went okay that was worth it you know to carry the laptop for three days on a trip away, but to get that pivotal thing that will will now affect you know the rest of the book. Um, yeah, Fantastic. so I could have just written that on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> do you listen to music, or do you do anything in particular to get into the headspace of the character in which you're writing that point of view that day? 
No, I really just go and have a quick look at the last, their last chapter of that character um, and then um, and then I'll, yeah, get into the headspace. Um, I, I'm not very good at describing the characters in my first draft, so then, so then at some point I think, oh, I should try and work out what they all look like. And I think with The Liars, my editor said, all the men seem to have dark, wavy hair. I said, oh, okay, I'll fix that up. <laughs> <laughs> so then I do um I do I did end up going and making a sort of um you know screenshots of people what they might look like and um so that I could describe them a bit better and because uh, I think for me I'm more I'm so interested in the emotional side of the story mm. and you know the behaviors to me it doesn't matter what they look like <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> but obviously we need to know what people look like. <laughs> in terms of the dialogue and in terms of their inner monologue as well, which is, you know, the way they speak, even if it's to themselves, what did you do to you make that so credible? It's not such a stretch to think that you would make Mary the mother credible because she is a similar age to you, she's in a similar kind of situation. But in terms of the other people, the um the, the men the the young people what did you do to get into that kind of um to make sure that the words they said were believable um i think partly i read a lot so <laughs> i think i read you know i'm reading about a wide range of people in you know fiction non-fiction um I talk to a lot of people <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to that question because I I know what you mean though. I guess once I decided Rolo, for example, he's a very laid-back character, he wants to please everyone, so his big fear is upsetting the apple cart. He doesn't want to, you know, he wants to keep everyone happy and obviously in this situation he cannot. Um, and so I guess I just really thought how would he respond to you know to this situation where he has to choose sides he's got to upset someone and how would he respond and what would he be thinking um and I guess the same with the chief inspector he's um he's very uh, on the straight and narrow he um he's has recently um uh so dobbed in is the wrong word um uncovered a corrupt cop in back in Sydney where he was working before and so he's you know he's in a monologue is about um, um, fairness and justice and doing the right thing. And I guess I just really tried to imagine them. I guess it's just imagining. <laughs> I can only assume you have a keen eye for observation because that only comes, you know, we all know a bloke like Rollo. Yeah. Um, we do, right? Like, <laughs> But we don't, it, 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 what an author needs to do is really observe that bloke to to be able to capture those sorts of nuances on the page, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I can only assume you're really <laughs> observant. <laughs> well, I think I'm 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 really interested in people and what what makes them tick. So I guess I'm trying to understand what how would he behave, what would he be thinking, um, and really dig deep into that. And I and I have teenagers, and so the other character, Sienna, is a fifteen year old and her yes. brother. Yeah. So and they're not, you know, they're very different to my teenagers. Um, but I guess I looked around at, at at my own teenager and her friends, and also um, Sienna's a real campaigner and wants to change the world. And I'm just I'm in awe of these teenagers who are, 
you know, going out there and doing so much. And so I, I really wanted to show that sort of character. And, you know, she's not, she's not quite Greta Thunberg, but she's, <laughs> she wouldn't mind if she was. Um, but at the same time, that character, that teenager, you know, they're so, they're so full of passion, but they don't actually have the experience and the knowledge to always do the right thing or, you know, to get it right. So I, to me, that was an interesting dichotomy from an older point of view to write that character to yeah. to be, you know, going down the track and and I can see she's doing the wrong thing, but um she doesn't know that that's that's about to happen. Um, yeah. yeah. So so many, so many layers to this book. Okay. So I always end with what are your top three tips um to aspiring writers who would love to finally be in a position where you are one day? The first is to read, but to read critically to to find out what's making the story work. Um, and I read I read so many different books, so many different genres. Um, and and but even I mean and I read I read newspaper stories which gives me ideas as well, but see how other people are doing things and how how you your story could sort of fit alongside those stories already in existence. Um, doing a course like at the Strata Writer Centre, and which gives you deadlines. And the other thing with deadlines is um, submitting to prizes and competitions. And even if you think it's not good enough, um, you know, there's there's no point submitting. One of the points of submitting is that it gives you a deadline to finish, you know, that manuscript or that chapter or whatever it is. And I've had friends who have just put things in and said, I'll never win, and then they've been shortlisted. And they're like, wow, look at that. And that gives them a whole... Um, you know, new impetus to keep going on that story. My third <laughs> one is to have a writer's group or, or have, have a group of supportive um, people around you who can read your manuscript, you can read theirs, and certainly, by, which I forgot to say earlier, by reading other people's manuscripts, you understand more about your own, you understand more about writing and about structure, and it helps you learn from their, from what they're doing you know, good or bad, whether it's they're doing the right thing or they're making mistakes and it doesn't work, you can see that when you give feedback. So having, um, having yeah, writer's groups is very good. So um, Brilliant. <laughs> reading, reading <laughs> deadlines and uh, writer's groups. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, congratulations on The Liars. It's going to be huge. I absolutely know it. And thank you so much for your time today, Petriana. Oh, thank you so much, Valerie. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Petronella. It's always absolutely fascinating to be talking to people who are going so well in their author career and who can share their insights into their own writing process. Now, this is actually where I love you and leave you this week because I have a lot to do because now that the house guests are gone and I have many, many loads of laundry. So I hope you all have a great week. Please do feel free to connect with me on social media um, and make sure you join the podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. And, oh, if I can make one small request as well, if you are enjoying this podcast, please do leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever your app is, your podcast app of choice is, because it really helps us in the rankings and to get discovered by other people. 
If you are going to connect with me on social media, then I am Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com, which is my personal website. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.